This is Commemorate Canada. You know that aging department store at the center of many Canadian big city downtowns? Today we know it simply as the Bay. The connections are stretched, especially over the last decade of American ownership and branding, but the Bay's links stretch all the way back to 1670. Indeed, they're even part of Canada itself. So, as the Hudson's Bay Company turns 350, and as online shopping threatens big retailers like the Bay, maybe it's time to ask, what does the HBC mean for Canada in 2020? I'm Tim Querengesser, and this is Commemorate Canada, a podcast about Canadian anniversaries and history. The podcast is a partnership between Canadian Geographic, Heritage Canada, and the Government of Canada. If you only vaguely know how the Bay's history is interwoven with Canada, keep listening. Our episode speaks with two writers to discuss the company's past, present, and future. Like the Bay itself, this story starts with fur and water and ends in a department store. Its importance to Canada is what, what it did in the past and how it how it basically uh, kept the west as as british and then and then eventually as part of canada i think that the legacy of the hudson bay company is the the vast territory of the west that canada inherited from the hudson bay company now people can argue whether or not the hudson bay company owned that land or not but certainly the americans believed it and i think the fact that the hudson bay company transferred that land to canada in, in 1868 assured Canada that it would have that land um, as part of our country. That's historian and author Mark Bury. His latest book, Bushrunner, is about the Hudson's Bay Company's adventurous co-creator, Pierre Desprez Radisson. Radisson didn't create the bay to be a store. He did it to get rich. And he did it using the most Canadian solution of all. Water. In the 1660s, indigenous nations knew about the Big Bay and the rivers that connected to it at the heart of what became Canada. But for the most part, Europeans didn't. They were newcomers. Their world was centered in the east, around New France on the St. Lawrence River. Most everywhere else was the unknown. Beaver, mink, and fox furs were fetching top prices in Europe. Beaver especially made exquisite felt for hats. But to gather more furs from indigenous hunters required treacherous trips, often on foot, from New France into the Northwest. This is where Radisson and his brother-in-law, a guy known to historians as Gooseberries, enter the story. The pair dreamed of sailing directly to the rich fur country in the Northwest, using Hudson Bay. Rather than the furs coming to them, they would go to the furs. Leaders of the small settlement of New France on the St. Lawrence said no to the idea, but Radisson and Gooseberries made alliances with the English to pursue it. In 1668, the two men sailed to the western shore of Hudson Bay, 
The fur bounty the pair later returned to Europe with was so convincing that in 1670, King Charles II of England decided to create a charter company with a monopoly to harvest the furs from any area with a river connected to the bay. This was the beginning of the Hudson's Bay Company, but much more than that. The fur trade was a resource industry. It wasn't like what the Hudson Bay Company does now, which is runs department stores. It was, it was a trade set up to exploit a natural resource that the indigenous people already exploited for their own clothing and, and for all kinds of other things, including some, in some places making homes and things. The Europeans really didn't bring that much to the trade except the stuff they were actually trading. It's one of those industries like forestry that really pushes into Canada in its earliest days. If you look at the fur trade through Radisson's eyes and the people of Radisson's period, the trade was mostly staffed by Indigenous people. It ran on Indigenous uh, trade routes. It was it was run with Indigenous legal concepts. It required a great deal of learning on behalf of the Europeans who were involved, who, who did learn the European languages and who really kind of bent themselves to what the Indigenous people needed. That changes over time, but at the, at the very beginning, I think it was something that started out as, as a good thing. It was an organization that, that made itself a fairly permanent presence in, in, in the Northwest. And it was an organization that was very sort of official as opposed to the, its challengers. Like they, they always had this, this, this deed from the King of, of England saying that they own a vast, vast area of the Northwest. And I think that that gave them at least a feeling that they were on a moral high ground when any interlopers came in. The map of Canada bears the remnants of the fur trade that the HBC and other companies exploited for hundreds of years before the country was even founded. Towns or abandoned places with the name Fort dot the landscape, into the far north, the prairies, the extreme west, and even into the United States. Many of these fur trade forts were based where indigenous peoples already lived. Entire towns and cities are now located on some of the oldest and busiest routes. Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan, Winnipeg. While this has long been celebrated as a founding narrative for Canada, it is also a story that has affected indigenous peoples for many generations. Edmonton historian Rob Houle is a member of the Swan River First Nation. Houle's view of the HBC is much different than the more mainstream one. I think there's a very, a very different history, um, a, der- a very different interpretation of what could have been. Um, again, uh, when you read the charter itself, then I know that the HBC is touting it around and taking it around the country right now to celebrate it. It speaks of uh, the native inhabitants that have always inhabited these territories and that HBC had a monopoly trading arrangement with those groups of people. So again, if that charter and, and that monopoly hadn't been granted, would the West have developed the way that it would have or would, would we have something different, maybe something a lot different? Because with the colonization of the West, you have utter massive displacement, you have utter massive death and destruction of indigenous communities. You have forts propping up where indigenous people have always camped and, and being displaced. Imagine you go camping one one summer and then you return home in the fall and all of a sudden your house is inhabited by 
totally different people and totally different strangers that you've never encountered before. That's essentially what happened when people started building forts in our territories and the displacement that came thereafter. So I think it's, it's a little short-sighted to say that the HBC helped create the West and Canada as we know it, and that it was this fantastic thing. For the HBC, big things happened when Canada became a country. In 1869, the company sold the land it was gifted by the king in 1670 to Canada for just 300,000 pounds. For land that now stretches from Ontario to Alberta, that's not much. It's far less than the Americans even paid the Russians for Alaska. In 1913, the HBC made a radical shift and opened six department stores in Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, and Victoria. But it was only in 1970, on its 300th birthday, that the HBC transferred its ownership from England to Canada itself. By 2008, the company was sold again, this time to American owners for $1 billion. And for many Canadians... That's where the connections frayed. Is the Bay really Canadian nowadays? It isn't really clear, nor is the future. The company owns 250 retail stores and employs roughly 30,000 people worldwide, but it's struggling like many retailers. Competition from online shopping is immense, as are the effects of the COVID 19 pandemic. Even its flagship stores, some of those original six, are closing in 2020. Still, Bury says that even if the Hudson's Bay Company eventually disappears, it has left many things behind. There were two legacies of the Hudson Bay Company. One is the land of the West. The other is its incredible archives, which are the most important historical papers in Canada. They're in Winnipeg now. They're in the Manitoba Provincial Archives. That is something of such value. There's nothing else like it that I can think of in the world. Those archives give us an unexplored wealth of material uh, about how Indigenous people lived, how that, how that fur trade happened. And scholars are going to be using it long, long after the Hudson Bay Company sells its last jacket or pot and pan. Thanks for joining me on this journey through one significant anniversary in Canadian history. If you haven't done so, subscribe to our podcast, and you can also rate and review us. This podcast is available at no cost on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and also at cangeo.ca. To get in touch with us, send us a message on social media or email editor at canadiangeographic.ca. Today's episode is partly built from research by authors Rob Houle and Mark Bury. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.